Chapter Thirteen of Book One of Les Miserables, Volume Two, by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kai Lu. Les Miserables, Volume Two, by Victor Hugo. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book First, Waterloo. Chapter Thirteen, The Catastrophe. The rout behind the guard was melancholy. The army yielded suddenly on all sides at once. Hugomont, La Haisson, Papelot, Plancenoit. The cry "Treachery" was followed by a cry of "Save yourselves who can." An army which is disbanding is like a thaw. All yields, splits, cracks, floats, rolls, falls, jostles, hastens is precipitated. The disintegration is unprecedented. Ney borrows a horse, leaps upon it, and, without a hat, cravat, or sword, places himself across the Brussels road, stopping both English and French. He strives to detain the army. He recalls it to its duty. He insults it. He clings to the rout. He is overwhelmed. The soldiers fly from him, shouting, Long live Marshal Ney! Two of Durut's regiments go and come in a fright, as though tossed back and forth between the swords of the Uhlans and the fusillade of the brigades of Kempt, Best, Pack, and Relant. The worst of hand-to-hand -hand conflicts is the defeat. Friends kill each other in order to escape. Squadrons and battalions break and disperse against each other, like the tremendous foam of battle. Lebeau at one extremity and Ryle at the other are drawn into the tide. In vain does Napoleon erect walls from what is left to him of his guard. In vain does he expend in a last effort his last serviceable squadrons. Keogh retreats before Vivian, Kellerman before Vandeleur, Lubeau before Bulow, Morand before Perch, Damon and Subervik before Prince William of Prussia. Guyot, who led the Emperor's squadrons to the charge, falls beneath the feet of the English dragoons. Napoleon gallops past the line of fugitives harangues, urges, threatens, entreats them. All the mouths which in the morning had shouted, Long live the emperor, remain gaping. They hardly recognize him. The Prussian cavalry, newly arrived, dashes forward, flies, hews, slashes, kills, exterminates. Horses lash out, the cannons flee. The soldiers of the artillery train unharness the caissons and use the horses to make their escape. Transports overturned, with all four wheels in the air, clog the road and occasion massacres. Men are crushed, trampled down, others walk over the dead and the living. Arms are lost, a dizzy multitude fills the roads, the paths, the bridges, the plains, the hills, the valleys, the woods. Encumbered by this invasion of forty thousand men, shouts of despair, knapsacks and guns flung among the rye, Passages forced at the point of the sword. No more comrades, no more officers, no more generals. An inexpressible terror. Zeiten putting France to the sword at its leisure. Lions converted into goats. Such was the flight. At Genappe, an effort was made to wheel about, to present a battle front, to draw up a line. Lebeau rallied three hundred men. The entrance to the village was barricaded. But at the first volley of Prussian canister, all took to flight again, and Lebeau was taken. 
That volley of grape shot can be seen today, imprinted on the ancient gable of a brick building on the right of the road a few minutes' distance before you enter Genappe. The Prussians threw themselves into Genappe, furious, no doubt, that they were not more entirely the conquerors. The pursuit was stupendous. Blücher ordered extermination. Roguet had set the lugubrious example of threatening with death any French grenadier who should bring him a Prussian prisoner. Blücher outdid Roguet. Duhaime, the general of the young guard, hemmed in at the doorway of an inn at Genappe, surrendered his sword to a hussar of death, who took the sword and slew the prisoner. The victory was completed by the assassination of the vanquished. Let us inflict punishment since we are history. Old Blücher disgraced himself. This ferocity put the finishing touch to the disaster. The desperate route traversed Genappe, traversed Cotterbras, traversed Gosselie, traversed Frayne, traversed Charleroi, traversed Thine, and only halted at the frontier. Alas, and who then was fleeing in that manner? The Grand Army. This vertigo, this terror, this downfall into ruin of the loftiest bravery which ever astounded history, is that causeless? No. The shadow of an enormous right is projected athwart Waterloo. It is the day of destiny, the force which is mightier than man produced that day. Hence the terrified wrinkle of those brows, hence all those great souls surrendering their swords. Those who had conquered Europe have fallen prone on the earth, with nothing left to say nor to do, feeling the present shadow of a terrible presence. Hoc erat infatis. That day the perspective of the human race underwent a change. Waterloo is the hinge of the nineteenth century. The disappearance of the great man was necessary to the advent of the great century. Someone, a person to whom one replies not, took the responsibility on himself. The panic of heroes can be explained. In the Battle of Waterloo there is something more than a cloud. There is something of the meteor. God has passed by. At nightfall, in a meadow near Genappe, Bernard and Bertrand seized by the skirt of his coat and detained a man, haggard, pensive, sinister, gloomy, who, dragged to that point by the current of the route, had just dismounted, had passed the bridle of his horse over his arm, and with wild eye was returning alone to Waterloo. It was Napoleon, the immense somnambulist of this dream which had crumbled, essaying once more to advance. End of Book One Chapter 13